The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. In the second of our series of episodes focused on the revolution of Steve Jobs, we're talking to the composer of this opera, Mason Bates. As one of the most performed living composers, Mason connects technology and classical music in new and exciting ways. He's the first composer in residence at the Kennedy Center and has collaborated in similar fashions with the orchestras of Chicago, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, just to name a few. Mason also creates unique events combining classical music and contemporary beats as his alter ego, DJ Masonic. Last night, though, Philharmonia Baroque premiered yet another new orchestral work of his, Appalachian Air. And Mason has been gracious enough to squeeze us in between the performances of this piece. Welcome, Mason, to the Ghostlight Podcast. It's great to be here, and it's a great title for a podcast, by the oh, way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, how did the how did the premiere go last night? Tell us a little bit about this new piece. It was great. You know, Philharmonia Baroque is an orchestra I've been listening to for like 20 years in the Bay Area. They obviously, from the name you can deduce, that they play period instruments, and they primarily play very old music from like you know, the 18th century and before. But they do have a robust commissioning program, which is great because as a composer, I'm just fascinated with how orchestral instruments have evolved. And it's such a rare treat to better write for like the Theorbo or Baroque violin, harpsichord. So um, Appalachian Air, as you might tell from the title, is kind of like an early bluesy piece for period instruments. And the reason I went in that kind of surprising direction is that there are actually a lot of shared um, bowing techniques and even musical um, elements between the Baroque period and bluegrass because, you know, I grew up in Virginia and I, the way they hold the bow is similar. That's that playing style was kind of frozen in time when the colonists got over here. So I thought it'd be kind of provocative to have a piece that's sort of a dreamy um, blues exploration heard on these instruments. Wow, I can't wait to hear it at some point. And you have two more performances, right? Tonight and tomorrow? Actually, three. Yeah, there's okay. one at Stanford and uh, two in Berkeley. Fantastic. Well, um, we're here, obviously, to talk very specifically about the revolution of Steve Jobs. We are moving into the theater tonight and are excited to be on the set for the first time and start to bring the, the opening night even closer. Correct me if I'm wrong. I've heard that you started this project and brought Mark Campbell into it without actually having a producer behind that. Is that accurate? Well, it's, it's pretty close. Um, initially, Cal Performances, at that time led by Matthias Tarnoplowski, who now runs the Philadelphia Orchestra, had said, hey, we're interested in an opera. What would you like to write about? And I thought, well, Cal Performances being Bay Area-based, um, maybe the right place to write a piece about some kind of creative technologist. And Steve Jobs, I felt like it was almost too obvious. So I started looking up others. Turns out nobody is as interesting as Steve Jobs. Even people you think are interesting, um, <laughs> they don't have operatic lives. So I thought, okay, he's got betrayal. He's got passion, obsession, love. He's got death. And this is the stuff of opera. So I needed somebody that could really write in almost a show kind of way, meaning I really wanted clear numbers. I really wanted some catchy um, lyrics. And I really wanted a difference between when we're kind of not singing an aria and when we're singing an aria, which sounds 
pretty pretty normal. But you know, as we all know in modern opera, that's not the case. And Mark Campbell was the perfect collaborator. And so what was your, did you have kind of an elevator pitch then to get the producers on board who eventually the, the Santa Fe opera where I work in the summer took it on as one of their many new opera projects over the years and did an amazing job. Did you have a pitch that you did to Charles McKay? I'm just curious. Well, interestingly, I had been going to Santa Fe opera for like 17 years. Um, I, I actually, um, Brad Woolbright, the artistic director, artistic administrator sent me an email that I had sent to him in 2000, where I was going to see operas there. And I was like, Hey, you should check out this opera I'm writing. I had like sent them several ones over the years. And Brad was like, not ready yet. And I was so annoyed. Um, in hindsight, I'm very appreciative for his feedback because it took a couple false starts to have the maturity um, and the and musical chops to write this piece. So at that point, they did know me, but um, yeah, the, the pitch was kind of, here is one of the world's most important people who presents as an artist. You know, he changed the way that we speak to each other and he's changed our civilization, but he's like an artist. And we haven't heard the story of a creative technologist in opera, but we have models for that with La Boheme or Tales of Hoffman. And I think one of the things that was key to the pitch was that this is not about the iPod. It's really about a person. And it's got a person who's got a fatal flaw, which is he wants to control everything, including his own cancer treatments. And I will say Charles McKay and Brad Wilbright were just unbelievably courageous to, to take the piece on. And thanks also to Matthew Schilbach from Santa Francisco Opera, who was the first non-Santa Fe company to sign on. This May, discover the human behind the devices we use every day his genius, his complexities, and his flaws in a thoroughly modern opera as innovative as its inspiration, The Revolution of Steve Jobs. With rave reviews across North America, this must-see Grammy Award winner comes to Utah Opera. Be there for the Salt Lake City premiere of The Revolution of Steve Jobs, May 6th through 14th. Tickets at utahopera.org. The story obviously is important. People or curious about what's Steve Jobs on the operatic stage like. But John Adams said something to me that I've always thought about. He said, you know, I kind of am reminded of when I was writing Nixon in China. He said, everybody was so intrigued by an opera about Richard Nixon. How can you do that? The reason that it kind of stuck with me was that when you're dealing with an iconic figure like this, you kind of need to be a little surprising it's not enough just to have a cool figure. Like people need to come and be shown something they weren't expecting. And I think what we get in this piece, especially in that last third, is um, is a real human touch. And particularly with Lorene Jobs. I mean, one of the things I said to Mark, and he totally was with me with this. Um, let's have a bit of a of a stealing of the show. You know, we need to have Lorene kind of rise in importance with a couple of big arias at the end. So I think one of the things that's helped this piece is first of all, it has a lot of new surfaces, but it, it's hardwired to some very basic operatic needs, like simple things like love, death, passion. But the other is that it shows a side of Steve Jobs we haven't really seen. 
you know, speaking of simple operatic needs, I want to talk about nuts and bolts a little bit with you, if you don't mind. And, you know, thanks to Wagner, who coined the term in the 19th century, whenever we talk about opera, we talk about leitmotif, right? And these are musical ideas, melodic, harmonic, that represent characters, ideas, objects that are sort of meant as reference points. So talk about how you used and adapted this idea of leitmotif in Revolution of Steve Jobs. Well, I'm so glad you're asking that because leitmotif is something that we hear everywhere. You watch Star Wars and you hear it doesn't have to be like the theme comes when the character's on screen, just if they're thinking of the character. It's such a wonderful musical technique to hardline, uh, to hardwire the drama to the music. So I thought, you know, here's a story about a guy who changed the way we communicate. You know, we're all sending our lives to these little sleep devices in the ways we weren't before Steve. And um, I thought, you know, basically the opera needs to have an element of like the music of communication and the way these characters interact has to kind of dramatize a bit of the impact um, that Steve Jobs has had on us. So I, I thought it, beyond just giving people themes, it'd be cool to give them almost like sound worlds. And an example of that would be like a traditional example in this opera is Laureen Powell Jobs has a very soulful melody that's paired with like kind of really oceanic strings that's a little bit kind of traditional theme boom but when you take somebody like Kobun, um steve jobs buddhist buddhist spiritual advisor he doesn't have a theme so much as like this kind of sound world and a sound world you know can just be like a chord but if you really extrapolate out it can be like in this case like sound design it almost sounds like he's like in this kind of mystical space where you hear samples of like wind chimes and prayer bowls and and every character kind of has their own sound world and steve um of course has a very driving kind of nervous frenetic sound world acoustic guitar electronica and what's interesting is is when you have those things kind of collide so like laureen ends up kind of winning the argument um and her really soulful music kind of ends up giving a bear hug around the music of Steve Jobs. So the end of the piece doesn't really have any electronics at all. It really just becomes um, the music of Laureen. So that's where like your question about leitmotifs is really getting at the heart of what I was trying to do with this piece. And that's really where things can get interesting is when people meet, their musics have to collide too. Yeah, we um, did a presentation earlier in the week and my co-presenter, uh, found that one of those conversations between Steve and Laureen where you have the driving and then it would constantly go back to those oceanic yeah. strings and it went back and forth and it was so clear the emotional arc of the comp the conversation because of the orchestration and not just the words they were saying to one another. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I I found myself getting really focused on this topic because, you know, if you look at great operas, there's different vocal writing styles for different characters. There's, there's all kinds of ways that you dramatize these characters. And, and sometimes I miss a little bit in, in modern opera, that level of dramatization. And, you know, when you think about no matter how vivid the orchestration is, these are singers that are really going to have to carry this thing. And um, I, I, I feel like I need to do my job to, to give them something that really characterizes them. And then also before we get to that, you know, we, Mark and I talked a lot about what's up with these characters, you know, what are their motivations? And they really need to be more than just like Buddhist guy. You know, it's like, what's why is what's his motivation? He's the only person that can tell Steve you're being a jerk. 
for example. So yeah, it, it kind of starts really all, all the way back at the libretto. And if you can get it right, it really gives these, this very small kind of intimate cast um, a world that they can create. Well, um, you you alluded just now to the electronica, and that's a, a very key part of your compositions in general and about this piece in in um, particular. And I do like what you said about how uh, the end of the opera doesn't have so much electronica. That's when I breathe and I get sit back and just enjoy the music because I'm not having to count and, and think about the next patch to trigger. But uh, what drove... I think you've already talked about some of this. What drove your usage of electronica? You obviously decided certain places very specifically to use it and then to take it out. And then um, how did you choose the sounds too? Right. Well, it, it felt like this would be a, a great way for opera to really include an electronic element in an important theatrical way. You know, we all know in the field that technological developments have, have been behind a lot of the evolution of the field mm -hmm. chicken and the egg you know is it a composer needs this or scenic design needs that that drives it but in this case i was like this is not for where we absolutely need it so the choices of the sounds to use really would come down to is it a character situation is it a scene setting situation um or is it some kind of theatrical effect so the opening of the opera has actual samples of like early Macintosh gear. And I, I talked to Gary Rydstrom, a huge sound designer for Steven Spielberg, who actually worked in Athlon in the 90s. And he was able to get me some amazing sounds. Now, it, when you hear these key clicks and these hard drives spinning, you know, is, do you as a listener really know that's a Mac Plus versus um, a PC? Well, you hear this computer. And I thought it'd be kind of provocative to open the opera with a musical um, rhythms of, of his creations as a way of just kind of saying without saying he's changed our world. But in other places like with Koboon, um, I, you know, found these kind of different um, meditative instruments like prayer bowls and then kind of swirled them into this kind of windy space. And then there are a couple other places where, um, you know, they're actual like kind of techno beats and that tends to happen in like the product launch scene or in the, there's a big kind of corporate offices scene where lots of people on stage. And I, and in that case, I really want to conjure up the frenetic busyness that Steve Jobs put everybody through to get his products out on time. Yeah. It's an obsessive motor rhythm that drives. And uh, for those of you who are listening, you won't know this, but uh, the conductor actually, in many cases, we have some ability to adjust the tempo of these samples, but the conductor, um, has to be very strongly keyed into those and keep the orchestra with the synthesized sounds. That's a, a different challenge for a conductor. Yeah. And it's not a natural thing for an orchestra to lock into beats, but if you can do it in a way that is respectful of the medium, you can enter this whole world. Um, you know, there's a lot that can be done there. So it's not an easy element of the piece, but to me, it's a really exciting part of it. I mean, certainly I'm, I'm enjoying every, every moment of it. You know, it was just, there was some challenges learning again, just to um, the precision of the samples and how they respond. Each one responds with a different bit of timing, but uh, it feels like I'm playing a musical instrument and not just creating someone and mapping electronic sounds. It's, it feels like a part of the piece in a really wow. meaningful way.
Hey, Mason, I want to jump tracks for just a second here. And I want to talk about something Utah Symphony just did. This is the orchestra that's going to be in the pit for your opera. Uh, they just performed Philharmonia Fantastique on their family concert series, which I think is just fabulous. And this piece has been a huge success across the industry. And this is an industry that's been hungry for the next great thing in this category. Everyone's wondering, when are we going to get the next Peter and the Wolf? And I think you've done it. It's totally different, but you've done it. So are you inspired to write more material for young listeners because of the success of this? Well, I'm so glad you're asking about that. Um, I just seen this new medium emerge right under our noses of like screen and orchestra. And I love that the orchestra is always developing and evolving, even though we may not know what that is. Even with electronic sounds, I've seen it's very easy to, to have the orchestra include that. So I just thought it'd be really cool to create an animated film that goes inside the instruments as a way of giving um, a kind of fresh guide, you know, like how do these instruments work? How are they made? What does a valve do? How, can you do that without saying anything? Just showing. So it was so great that um, they just performed it, like, I guess within a week or something. Or yeah. Week. yeah, it was just last week. Yeah. Um, and it's been incredible to have this become like my, my most performed piece because it's it's a big piece that has a bit of tech involved. I feel like, um, yes, the piece is absolutely um, meant to inspire particularly young people, but the magic of the orchestra. But what's been really cool is that a lot of orchestras have done it um, in the concerto slot of a main evening show. And I, I think I think the reason that is happening is that people are seeing it a little bit like in the mold of a piece by Ravel or Prokofiev or Britain that it has vibrant orchestration to conjure this sense of wonder. But like Mother Goose Suite or something, it absolutely is a serious endeavor. So I, I wrote the piece really thinking that Yes, it's going to absolutely breathe life into a lot of young people's concerts. But it's great that it's it's now out on Apple TV and um, that anybody can check it out. And I'm really thankful for the support of John Williams. He saw the film, gave us a great tribute to it. He showed it to Gustavo Dudamel, who's going to conduct it next season. And um, really, most of all, I'm happy that my kids, who are now 10 and 13, um, really have loved seeing it in different places because they're pretty harsh critics. <laughs> oh, well, um, now I don't know if I'm getting into material that is um, too uh, secretive at this moment. Back in 2018, it was announced that you were going to be doing a project with the Metropolitan Opera, The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, an operatic thing. How's that going? With how, what did the pandemic do to that? Um, well, that's happening. Um yeah. Season uh, 24, um, actually not next season, the, the fall of 24 okay. with LA Opera and then at the Met the following year. So, yeah, that is what I am uh, on fire with right now. The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay is a really famous novel that won the Pulitzer by Michael Chabon. It's many people's favorite novel because it has this incredible surface talking and bringing to like the story of New York in the 40s, you know, just bling, bling, like you know, Tin Pan Alley. Um, but it's got this really amazing substance to it. It's in a nutshell about these two Jewish cousins who have to make money to save their family that's being persecuted in Europe. And they don't save them. It's not possible to do that. But in the process of making money, the only thing they can do is draw and tell stories. They go into this new thing of comic books. And so they create this 
Jewish superhero called the escapist, which in this fantasy world of novel becomes almost like Superman, you know, like mm-hmm. become like most famous um, comic book hero in, in America. And so it's a great telling of the immigrant story. Um, it's a really great collision of like World War II and superheroes. It, it's an incredible love story. Um, the, the main four characters have this incredible um, journey. And what I also love is that it allows me to write three very different kinds of music. There's like New York in the forties. There's the world of comic books, which is completely, you know, pulsing and exciting. And then there's world war two and, and really concentration camps and very, very heavy stuff, which is much more like a plectrum, you know, like Eastern European type sound world of strings and mandolin. And so, um, I'm, I'm really, really, into this piece right now. I think it's going to be exciting to have it happen in LA and New York. And um, I appreciate you asking about it. Well, is, um, and I'm curious, you know, in the whole process of this, obviously it's been postponed because we had a kind of this weird two year hiatus. Did you uh, find that that was a great opportunity to really focus in on it and get some bonus time? Or were you finding that just a challenge to have the, to keep the momentum going? I wish it had been a computer virus. You know, (laughs) I was not a big fan of COVID. I wish I could put a silver lining on it, but it was hard. I mean, I I, I realized as an artist, I had been putting 100% of my energies into the kind of Copeland or Bernstein or John Adams trajectory, which is live performance, people coming together. And I don't spend an enormous amount of time um, on social media. I mean, I have you know, social media handles and accounts and I, I work on them now, but at that time I was like, the digital world wasn't a priority for me. So I thought, first of all, very like, like offline, you know, I was like, nothing's happening. The other thing is that I, I, none of us really knew what it would be like to not hear live music and, and also just not be around people. We're just wired for that. And thirdly, I mean, living in the Bay area, you know, we're in a lot of these tech people and many of them, are my friends, um, you know, I'm sure all of them would like to see us harnessed to just like screens, but that's just not the way we're wired. And so I was a little bit annoyed that this world of tech that takes 98% of the oxygen out of the room anyway, then got the remaining 2%. So it was, it was kind of a tough time for me and I was not a happy camper. Um, I will say that even though Philharmonia had been conceived and written before the pandemic, um, that's a project, Philharmonia Fantastique, that I felt like really had renewed urgency after the pandemic because it it brings the orchestra to people in a new way. And and even the story of Steve Jobs, you know, at the end, Lorena saying, look up, look out from your device. Um, that's something we all were saying to each other as COVID was wearing on. So I'm... I think it, we had some good times as a family, sort of, but man, it was tough. We all uh, learned to use Zoom in a different way, and this conversation wouldn't be happening if it weren't for Zoom, because we can't, you know, you don't have the time, and we don't have the the, the resources to bring you out just to have this conversation live. So um, the blessings are also curses at the same time. Yeah. Just a real double-edged sword. Yeah, it's true. So- Mason, we, we read that you're doing this with Gene, right? The Cavalier and Clay thing with Gene Shear. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe we can have the two of you back on as returning Ghostlight guests to talk about that when the time is right. It would be fabulous. Be great. 
I know we're running out of time with you. You've got a hard out. So before we let you go, where can people find you online? How can people learn more about you, you and your music? Well, I mean, um, I'm definitely on Instagram and Facebook. I mean, I'm, I'm on Twitter, but I'm less of a fan of it these days. And I have a TikTok channel. Um, I also have just a good old fashioned website <laughs> where you can check out what I'm doing, read about stuff. But I also would suggest checking out spritesworld.org. That is the world of the Sprite from Philharmonia Fantastique. And it can take you to the Apple TV um, place where you can spend 22 minutes going inside instruments. Love it. Well, we're so grateful that you carved out the moment for us. And um, we are thrilled to have you in Salt Lake for opening night of the Revolution of Steve Jobs. Looking forward to that. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. This is such a cool podcast. And I look forward to talking to you again. I know we'll do it. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. If you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us to get new listeners. Be sure to visit usuo.org for information about upcoming performances, including the revolution of Steve Jobs. We hope to see you soon at one of our venues for a live performance. Until next time, I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. <laughs>